Hello and welcome everyone to Out of the Tower, where we find philosophy and tech neck and neck. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Professor Rob Reich of Stanford University. Today we are going to be discussing uh, his new book, System Air, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot, uh, co-written Mehran Sahami and Jeremy M. Weinstein. He is a professor of political science and by curtsy philosophy. Uh, he is also the director of the Center for Ethics in Society, as well as the co-director and associate director for the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society and the Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, respectively. Uh, a key figure at the juncture between ethics and technology, uh, his work in political theory deals with the efforts of social scientists and engineers. Uh, he has also written numerous texts in philanthropy and education, including Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better, and Education Just and democracy. And be sure to check out his new book, Digital Technology and Democratic Theory, released earlier this year. So, Professor, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Peter. So right off the bat, Professor, I'd really like to know, so uh, between you, uh, Mr. Sahami, and uh, Weinstein, uh, what really prompted um, you to write the book, uh, given the disparate backgrounds you have as a technologist, a policymaker, and a philosopher? What really sparked all this? Yeah, uh, the the origin of the book is in a class that we've been teaching for the past three years. And so we came together about four years ago on Stanford's campus. Stanford, as, as I'm sure the listeners uh, will know, is one of the central, if not the central, production line for the technologists that have created the companies and then the engineers who work at them in Silicon Valley that have then transformed our world through the digital tools, services, and platforms that are now so ubiquitous. And in the past decade, I, not an engineer, witnessed the kind of great migration of undergraduates from the social sciences and humanities to major in computer science and record numbers. And it seemed to me that the kind of vision on offer to a young 19-year-old was that this was all upside. You've got these technical skills. Silicon Valley investors from Sand Hill Road came to campus to recruit you. The companies would send job offers to you, almost sight unseen, and you could both make a ton of money and change the world for the better by becoming a technologist. And uh, about four or five years ago, as the bloom was coming off the rose of Silicon Valley and so many of the social consequences that are negative of uh, big tech were becoming obvious, privacy abuses, misinformation and disinformation, automation and ro ro robotics that were displacing people from the workplace and bias in algorithmic models and decision making and, and on and on. I thought it was important to try to work together with technologists and social scientists and policymakers, initially to begin to teach a class to the people who would be the next generation of leaders in Silicon Valley. And then once we began teaching, we thought we had some really good material. And the class was the kind of inspiration for the book that we wrote. Fantastic. So uh, one thing that really stuck out to me uh, when reading the book, especially um, in the early chapters, uh, especially the first third, I would say, is um, how you characterize the optimization mindset, which seems to be one of the core tenets of any technologist, especially coming from the uh, Stanford Silicon Valley area. So as to that, um, to be able to have that mindset of looking to see where something can be perfected, where it can be uh, pushed to its absolute limit of ideal 
operation. Uh, what I'm really curious about is, um, do you find it, uh, especially as a professor uh, teaching um, these sort of classes, do you find it inherently unfeasible for those trained, really um, sort of bathed in the optimization mindset um, to consider social consequences in the midst of that uh, development, in the midst of that black box of um, educating a young mind um, when creating specifically disruptive technologies? Um, do you think it's exacerbated by the economic need to move fast and break things? Yeah, you're, um, I don't think it's impossible for engineers to be much better at anticipating the social consequences of the tools, platforms, products they build. Uh, and um, uh, that can the improvement in that capacity can come both from a, a reorientation of the technologist's mindset beyond merely optimizing but I want to emphasize two things beyond that. Um, I think that um, it would behoove technologists or engineers to coordinate, cooperate, to work together in product development life cycles with social scientists who have longstanding capacities and frameworks to anticipate and then measure social harms. So let me give you a concrete example of this. Uh, engineers are really happy these days to um, learn from the work of behavioral psychologists and behavioral economists in order to try to understand better how the design of technological interfaces can better, as it were, addict people to the devices. Um, in other words, there's a big appetite for learning from the work of social scientists in order to des design ever more addictive or engaging products. However, there's no reciprocal appetite for the most part to work with social scientists in anticipating social harms. What, for example, would you predict when you install a like button or a retweet button in terms of the social dynamic that could be unleashed, as opposed to just thinking we'll do user testing in an A-B format in order to marginally increase the design of the interface to engage people ever more with the behavior that's desired. So it's entirely possible to bring on board social scientists to think about the social dynamics that could follow from a like button, but that simply didn't happen in the early days and still, for the most part, doesn't happen at a startup company. And that's the kind of integration of frameworks or mindsets that the course represents and that we think is important to transform the actual product development lifecycle in tech companies. I think it's interesting to be able to uh, want to forge that reciprocal relationship, as you say, at the, uh, if you will, a ground level really within the classroom as you're helping to develop these young minds, as opposed to after the fact, after um, the venture cap was after the uh, startup phase. That actually does lead into another question. Um, a while back, we had a, a professor on the show, a Matthew Teichman of uh, the University of Chicago, and uh, he has uh, his background largely in uh, well both STEM and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was talking about how he often uh, would reframe uh, in the classroom certain philosophical questions so that uh, without even realizing it, um, you would have all these different STEM students uh, suddenly thinking and seriously considering these philosophical questions, yes. even if the, they were even if they were phrased in the traditional way, they'd be immediately put off. How do you try to navigate that yourself um, in these classes? Yeah, well, this this comes out of um you know, what got me interested in philosophy as something to study or to do back when I was an undergraduate, and I try to bring this 
same orientation to bear in the classroom now that I teach it and, and certainly in the things that I write. Um, I'll begin with the stereotype that an engineer might have about a philosopher, which is that when the ethicist shows up, the ethicist's role is to tell people to stop doing things that they were doing, to slow down and reconsider, to be more deliberative or to, you know, like build a moral compass or something like that. Um, it's usually a drag, in other words, when the philosopher arrives on the scene. Um, by contrast, I find hardly an original thought here, I find the moral complexity of the world and the necessity and ubiquity of charting an ethical path through life, a standing feature of the human condition. And rather than it being a kind of having a negative valence, oh, this is about stopping doing things that we might otherwise do or slowing down when we like to go fast. It's an energizing thing to actually identify the values that are meaningful to us, or to us collectively, and to identify how we might try to weight and orient the values to each other in order to be agents in making decisions about our life. I'll sometimes say to students, when I just try to awaken them, as it were, to the idea that uh, living a moral life isn't something we do on occasion, or worse, outsource to a chief ethics officer, but rather is a kind of daily occurrence, whether or not we realize we're making moral decisions or not. And who thinks that moral sleepwalking would somehow be a preferred orientation to thinking about questions of ethics? And um, as a result, the kind of framework I want to bring to bear with people is the utter necessity of thinking about value choices and value trade-offs and questions of standing to make decisions or legitimacy for tech companies to have struck value trade-offs on our behalf. For example, just again, to make this concrete, sitting in every listener's pocket or on the desk right now is a smartphone that has an end-to-end encrypted messaging app, whether it's iMessage or WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram. And end-to-end encrypted messaging is an extraordinary technical accomplishment that encodes the value of privacy. In other words, um, neither the company that hosts the messaging nor any outsider like the government can possibly get access to the content of your message. Um, There are other values that also matter when terrorists use end-to-end encrypted messaging platforms to plot a crime, when sex traffickers um, use it um, to share images of um, child pornography or or women who are being sex trafficked. There are values of safety and security that we should keep in mind. So right now, you know, a very small number of people at the helm of these tech companies has decided that when it comes to messaging, the only appropriate trade-off available to the rest of us is one that values privacy 100% and safety and security 0% insofar as no one can have access to a different trade-off. So from the very beginning of the product development lifecycle, to the release of a product and testing it in the world and improving it. And then when you achieve great scale and it turns out thousands or millions or even billions of people use your product, value trade-offs and questions arise at every step of the process. And moral sleepwalking is, is a terrible recipe or orientation to that. I think that's an actually very apt way to put it. And the way you seem to characterize the need to have the questions about value trade-offs chronologically take place as these technologies are being developed because 
you almost inevitably otherwise lead to the characterization of, as you say, a moral or ethical sleepwalking um, and sort of portraying, um, as I've from time to time viewed it in my mind as sort of a moral leash yes. uh, to innovation. I think that's a terrible characterization for philosophy, especially um, in a world of these brand new disruptive emergent technologies. And as to that, uh, breaking a little bit more into the book, um, you do talk uh, multiple times about a technocratic governance uh, being uh, replaced by democracy. Yeah. Um, could you just delve a little bit more into that? What your real uh, concern about that is, especially as we see uh, the rise of uh, China in the playing field? Uh, sure. Just any concerns there? Well, let's just specify what it is that that, that we mean in the book by technocratic governance. Um, yes. So, I mean, again, to illustrate, uh, given the way that big tech companies are organized, which is to say they're organized hierarchically. They're not democratically organized. At the moment, Mark Zuckerberg um, is the governor of a speech community of almost 4 billion people. Um, his sole decision-making is what determines what's permissible content and what's upranked and downranked on the Facebook platform. Not even the board of directors at Facebook is able to dislodge Zuckerberg the way the voting shares have been constructed. Um, I don't think that giving a technocratically oriented leader um, the permission to decide the speech environment of 4 billion people is a power that any single person should have. And Mark Zuckerberg is the unelected dictator of the speech environment of 4 billion people. So that's an illustration of technocratic governance. Um, technocratic governance can happen in private industry. We can have private forms of governance when we have products that have such scale. So the relevant question is then how to get countervailing sources of power or influence, because it's not as if we wish to wipe away the influence of business leaders or companies or products, but rather when there are negative social consequences or negative externalities of tech products, which are, of course, driven by a business imperative to make revenue, when they achieve great scale and the social harms become commensurately larger, that's historically when democratic institutions get in the game of trying to install guardrails against some of the worst things that can happen. And then better reflect the collective preferences of citizens or people more generally to shift the kind of dynamic from the company responding to people as users to the social dynamic of our elected representatives responding to people's preferences as citizens. And that's a far better orientation to thinking about steering a technological future worth having than outsourcing to a few smart people in, in very large companies um, all of the decision making about how to design the products that we all use on a daily basis. Absolutely. And one of the ways we achieve that is by offering variety um, Absolutely. within the market itself. That's right. Because um, especially if, if we have uh, one user who has um, who is much more uh, strict, uh, if you will, about their uh, privacy preferences, you want to be able to have um, a competitor to Facebook that allows for easy migration um, to even to make sure that market share does not stay in place in Facebook's favor. Right. Um, on top of that, there is um, a... Idea that was mentioned that I believe uh, towards the end of the book, and it's being experimented with in uh, the UK and Taiwan, um, and I believe it's called a regulatory sandboxes. Yeah. And as I understand it, the central tenet of this is that you have um, 
uh, technologists essentially in the service of the government who are given a certain a period of time to develop a particular technology or whatever the disruption may be, and then be able to extract what the particular concerns that might be and how they can best be fixed. And I thought it was a really great way to sort of top, uh, end the book at that stage, yeah. um, especially when we, um, as the uh, book really talks about, it really contrasts, I should say, the uh, regulatory mindset of the EU yes. and the innovation mindset of the United States. Um, just a particular concern of mine, um, even if we were to introduce something as uh, seemingly scalable, as I take it, as as regulatory sandboxes, do you believe that they could ever reliably serve a, a, as a cushion against future disruption? Or from the patterns that you've observed, do you think there could be something that could shatter all current legislation and yeah. push it back to square one? Yeah, well, so the spirit um, of regulatory sandboxes that we invoke at the end of the book is to shift our orientation from public institutions or democratic institutions being reactive to last generation's technological frontier, which is what we're doing now in this conversations about social media or automation in the workplace or algorithmic models that have bias, to having a flexible and adaptive regulatory regime to the frontier technologies of the day. Now, one challenge in doing that is that you know, government officials, whether or not they're civil servants or elected representatives, are unlikely to be as deeply knowledgeable about the technological frontier as people within academia or industry. And so the idea of a regulatory sandbox is, is a kind of interesting idea from our perspective to allow for a far more flexible and regular, uh, flexible and adaptable regime. So the idea is uh, let, let's just make a concrete example. There's all kinds of debate now about cryptocurrencies or the blockchain or something. And take cryptocurrencies. Um, the, the, a government might decide to say, we, we don't know how best to put, in, put into place a series of regulations on cryptocurrency. It's too early. We don't really understand all of the social dimensions. So what we'll do with a regulatory sandbox is we'll identify a company or two and we'll say, you design the regulations that you think would be appropriate for your product or your, your cryptocurrency. However, after a two-year period or a one-year period, we, the government, have a right to review how this has gone, now seen from the standpoint of the government or the society, rather than from the standpoint of the shareholders and the company. If it turns out that the preferred regulatory regime of the company also seems to have served social interests, then the government can enact as wide-ranging legislation or regulation, those company-endorsed ideas from the regulatory sandbox. If, by contrast, there's been negative social consequences, then the government can choose a different company in a new regulatory sandbox to try out a new set of regulations. It gives the spirit of initial social regulation to a company, a set of innovators on the frontier, rather than to hothouse it always reactively within government. Now, there's no ever going back to square one. We exist within the status quo. The idea of this regulatory sandbox is to get an adaptable regulatory apparatus rather than one that's purely reactive to everything. Um, and uh, let's be clear, this is meant and as a kind of policy experiment. Do we think that this is the silver bullet solution to everything? No. Um, but in the spirit of looking for far more flexible regulatory regimes, 
we think this is an idea worth trying. And we point to several places in the world, like Taiwan and the UK, where they've given it a whirl. But I'd, I'd say the jury's still out too early to say how it works. Absolutely. A lot more work remains to be done. And I don't think that there can ever be a true silver bullet in that regard. I um, do think it's a, a fantastic model for providing that flexibility. But it is, as you say, there is going to be no real uh, silver bullet. That does lead into one other particular question, though. Um, perhaps you um, disagree with your co-authors on this, but uh, you in particular – uh, do you happen to see uh, just personally a specific area of technology today, whether that's AI, robotics, uh, cryptocurrency, cybersecurity, that perhaps, again, different from your co-authors, uh, you find particularly concerning? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm uh, quite fearful of not a day that's really far off. It's, it seems to be arriving uh, where highly accurate facial recognition tools are in the hands of everyone on on earth especially in the hands of of governments um using the nearly ubiquitous closed circuit television cameras in public spaces that make it trivially easy to identify anyone almost at any moment when they're in public so uh, i think uh, the widespread adoption of facial recognition technology poses amongst the most significant threats, both to individual privacy, but to um, the prospect of meaningful protest and reform in societies where the people in power now can deploy this to identify and repress particular individuals who engage in, in you know, activities uh, inimical to the regime's current interests. Um, of course, those same technologies can be attached to military weapons, which also pose then even more dramatic problems. Um, I feel like the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, but the um, there are still a few moments left to put some sensible regulations in place, but they would need to be adopted on a much wider basis than they have been. Um, I could also then point to things like um, large language models. So if people are familiar with GPT-3, um, uh, it's a product created by a company called OpenAI, where extremely powerful models can spit out extremely persuasive text of almost any length in any genre from a single simple prompt. You know, it would be something like, um, if you had one of these language models, Peter, you could say, you know, write me an essay about John Stuart Mill and social media and specify the length of the essay you want and out, out would come um, a fairly uh, recognizable essay about the topic. Um, the models threaten to replace um, a lot of human writing and um, the, the frontier here is, is accelerating very quickly. The models have become extremely powerful within the past 12 months. And in particular, as we have uh, been seeing that our val our um, confidence in the government is uh, at an all time low for many people. Um, and when you have so many people attached to Facebook, attached to Twitter, attached to so many different forms of social media, Reddit, um, including, if I may be allowed yes. to throw that one in there, um, when you have uh, the proliferation of such um, bots, for example, going around and, and posting poisonous political material and creating more and more echo chambers, um, that is an area of particular concern for mine as well right um especially as someone who uh you know values i think as we all do the ability to check our sources on top of that 
Um, I want to return to Facebook a little bit more because because um, I we were talking uh, you were uh, the book was talking a lot more about uh, the implementation of the review boards and hopefully I'm not overlapping on one of the previous questions here but um, just a little bit of a train of thought that came to mind that I thought uh, was peculiar yeah. was um do you ever foresee um considering that, as I understand it, this review board is consisted of uh, individuals who are not on the board full time. Um, it seems to be something of an optional um, role for them. Yep. And currently people are putting forward uh, manual appeals uh, to certain decisions if their content gets taken down. Right. Do you ever worry uh, in this particular example, if uh, too many manual appeals um, might overwhelm uh, just human review, and we might say, okay, let's return power to the algorithms. And if this is Facebook we're talking about, uh, um, just such a cultural force. Yes. If they, if those, if those review boards were to fail, what do you worry about the broader so- social implications for community content? Yeah, good, a really important question. And and you know, let's begin from some simple facts. The the amount of content uploaded to Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or TikTok or Snap, whatever the, your preferred large you know, social media uh, platform is, I mean, we're talking about billions of pieces of content on a daily basis. So there's zero possibility that there could be human review of every piece of content uploaded to Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. So we begin with automated review um, um, and then... The function of the oversight board, as you just correctly described it, is this independent body that can hear appeals, either stimulated or triggered by users themselves or sometimes by the company, about whether a particular decision to take content down was, it was, was wrongly made. And um, at the moment, the way the oversight board is constructed, it only has the power to recommend changes to individual takedown decisions. Either you know, put the Facebook put the material back up, or Facebook decided to leave it up, and the oversight board tells it to take it down. Given that there are billions of pieces of content, if as you were hypothesizing, the number of appeals that came before the board began to proliferate into the thousands, it would be impossible for an oversight board meaningfully to hear those cases. And we'd have to return to automated review, even on the oversight board itself, which seems to defeat its purpose. I take that as part of what's behind your question. So my own view about the oversight board is it has to evolve from making decisions about individual pieces of content, content, whether they were correctly or incorrectly taken down, to questions of policy or, as it were, the content moderation policy itself at Facebook. So as with the Supreme Court in the United States, um, it is making decisions about, of course, individual cases. That's the form in which the cases get presented, but refereeing contested matters of jurisprudence across different um, um, cases or states or whatever it turns out to be. I would like to see the Oversight Board shift to an orientation where it has the jurisdiction to review the community standards at Facebook rather than merely individual content decisions. And I think that would allow it to operate in a way the Supreme Court also could take, you know, thousands more cases than it does, but it takes selectively few of them in order to get at presumptively some of the most difficult and contested issues of jurisprudence. And similarly, the oversight board could avoid the scenario you, you hypothesize 
by taking on board questions about content moderation policy rather than individual decisions about content takedowns. Absolutely. And I, I would completely agree that manual review of any of these uh, b- these thousands, millions, billions of pieces of content is going to be impossible. Inevitably, you're going to have to uh, take these into sets and then identify them by particular uh, types of content, if you will, and sort of compare them across cases uh, to determine what is the best uh, decision given the, as you say, um, uh, Facebook's uh, terms of service for the community. So just as we kind of start to wrap up here, um, just want to uh, hopefully end on a bit more uh, hopeful note in that respect. Good. Uh, yes. how, <laughs> uh, how confident are you um, about the future and your particular recommendations? What would you say you're most optimistic about? Yeah, I want to emphasize this. I'm glad we're ending on a you know somewhat more optimistic note or strive to do so. Um, for people who have read the book and I think taken the class that we teach, they tend to comment that we're more optimistic than than perhaps most people think is warranted. And maybe especially for me as the philosopher um, who, you know, more often operate in a kind of doomsayer mode than in an uh, optimistic uh, um, uh, model, I, I guess here's where my optimism, where the, the book's optimism rests I feel like um, there has long been a race between private marketplace-driven disruption and regulation that's slower to come about to contain some of the problems of marketplace innovation and disruption. So the tech age is no different. And we are just now exiting, I think, the early part of the digital revolution in which we gave so much power to technologists and companies to make all of the relevant decisions on our behalf. We would complain for the past five years that there were problems and we'd get apology tours from the leaders of the company saying, we're working on it, we're going to do better. And I think there's now a moment where a policy window is opening. The 30-year period of giving complete deference to technologists to solve all the problems and correct any issues is done. And there's a, you know, a kind of decade plus long window opening in which there will be multiple efforts to constrain the power of tech companies and to put in place a set of sensible guardrails to um, ensure that the worst social harms are, are eliminated and that we harness some of the great benefits. And that moment allows us to imagine a role for all of us to play in our technological future instead of just giving power to people inside tech companies. Whether that means our role as a user, our role as a citizen, our role as a policymaker, our role within a company as a worker, uh, I think the kind of message that I want people to take away is that you have agency in this entire dynamic. And there's a way for all of us collectively to play a role in steering a technological future worth having rather than one that's simply imposed on us or kind of washes over us like a like a wave that we have no control over. And um, the book tries to spell out the different kinds of things that individuals can do what, wherever you happen to sit, whatever position you have within your own community, company. And of course, all of us are, are citizens of some, some place. And that's the optimistic message in which we hope. No book, no class, no single you know, action will itself accomplish this. It's the work of a, a generation. But that's, um, you know, a tried and true recipe for change. I always like to tell people the old cliche 
especially to young people, that we always overestimate the change that's likely to happen in one year and underestimate the change that will happen in a decade. If you go back in time 10 years from this current moment, this was prior to the tech backlash. Of course, it wasn't, you know, we were in the early phases of the Obama administration. There was still this enormous optimism about tech. Um, that 10-year, you know, passage to now, our world has changed so overwhelmingly and dramatically. That's the kind of thing we should imagine is possible 10 years from now, that we will have managed to have all of our act, act, act agency engaged and we have a new set of social institutions to steer ourselves into a better technological future. And I, I would absolutely second that. It's not only um, imperative that we uh, return agency to um, the everyday uh, individual, um, but also that we do uh, flip the narrative of of regulatory uh, reactiveness, if you will. Um, yes. And really getting at that at the core, as we um, mentioned earlier at the, st at the start, um, in the classroom. Um, so no, I, I'm really happy to hear about it. And I also think that's a fantastic um, saying, you know, we overestimate what's going to change in a year, underestimate what's going to change in 10 years. That's absolutely fantastic. I need to write that down. <laughs> well, Professor Reich, thank you so, so much for coming on to the show today. It has been an honor. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk with you, Peter. And for those interested, uh, you can right now purchase System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot, written by Rob Reich, Mehran Sahami, and Jeremy M. Weinstein. Available now on Amazon and your local bookstore. And I will see you all once I return from the tower again. Have a great evening. Take care.